Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. This is episode 13 and I'm with Nick Temple, aiming to demystify social investment. The content in this podcast is also relevant for people already working in the social investment sector as we cover various topics, including impact measurement, equality, diversity and inclusion in the sector, and the power dynamic between investor and investee. For those not ingrained in the world of social investment, something I found really interesting is the shift around impact measurement. So around five years ago, I was scoping social investment for a charity I worked for at the time. And I recall the impact measurement being very focused on specific outcomes. Uh, So for example, decreasing reoffending rates or getting people into employment or whatever your organisation focuses on but my chat with Nick paints quite a different and welcome picture because they're really interested in building the capacity and resilience of the organizations it supports and this is at the heart of its impact framework so I think it's definitely worth checking that out online as well. I feel quite strongly that the organizations that will thrive in the future are those that have a diverse income mix so across the spectrum from asking to earning. So for fellow fundraisers who may have stayed clear of social investment today I'd really encourage you to take a look. I hope that you enjoy listening. If you do, please share it. This episode, I'm with Nick Temple from a social investment business, chief exec, no less. And we are here to talk about demystifying social investment. Yeah, sounds good. That is me. And we can't quite remember how this podcast came about other than it was a, a joke that I sort of took seriously and was like, yeah, so you'll be coming on the podcast. Yeah, like all the best things, it's sort of random comment on social media, mm-hmm. uh, taken more seriously than it was intended, and then here we are. <laughs> so I think that sounds... You're you welcome know, for sounds having as me. Good. Yeah, I'm delighted <laughs> yeah. that you could make it. I've had an interaction with social investment business before. At NCVR annual conference earlier this year, Deborah Smart was on the panel that I was chairing about the oh. future of funding. Deborah's on it, isn't she? She is. No, Deborah's great. She's amazing and been head of grants here for quite a while. So she's been with us, I think, a decade now. Okay. So she, what she doesn't know about managing grant programs and business yeah. support programs at this point isn't worth knowing, I think. So no, she's a good, great person to have on board. So social investment business has been operating since 2002, providing over £400 million worth of loans and grants. And you've been in post for about 18 months. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, so the organisation has a, it started off really doing big government-backed social investment funds. So kind of everything had a builders in the name. So it was called Future Builders, which you might remember, and then Community (laughs) Builders. And then we kind of got into more grant programmes and grant-funded business support programmes, and they all had builders in the title. So they were like, no, they had readinesses, sorry, in the title. So like they were all investment readiness, childcare readiness, impact readiness uh, so we did builders and then readinesses and then I came in about 18 months ago yeah with a, a remit to change things really and um, look afresh at what we were about because the world of social investment from when we started in 2002 to now has changed a hell of a lot so working out what our role is and how we do the best we can with the people and the money and the experience we have that's my that's my job really I think the main bit is kind of we'd got a 
bit disconnected from what we call the customer, but we, mm-hmm. which is basically like charities and social enterprises. Yeah. We we'd probably lost a bit of focus on impact, which we could maybe come back to, and how we measure that and think about that. And also, I think we we'd maybe underestimated how much knowledge we had from that track record from the last 18 years and how we could use that a bit more not just to inform what we do next but also to inform and influence the wider sector so those are some of the things we've been getting to grips with in the last 18 months okay i usually start with a bit about what's your background yeah we seem to have skipped over that because i neglected to ask the question so (laughs) would you like to give us a bit of your background how far back do you want to go I mean, if there's anything from your childhood that you think is relevant to bring into it, then... Uh, I mean, I need to reinforce my northern credentials, as you can tell from my accent. So I was born okay. in Bury in Lancashire okay. and spent the first seven years of my life up in Manchester. Right. Okay. So I would have done that now, so that's yeah. fine. And then moved down south and have been here ever since. So I started off at a little charity that made its money from doing books for mainstream publishers and got interested in that bit where charity meets business, if you like, where you're earning more of your income. Uh, and so that led me to a place called the School for Social Entrepreneurs, who you might have come across. Yeah, they're just down the road, aren't they? Yeah, so up in London Bridge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there I was working to grow the franchise of schools they have across the country um, and on their kind of policy and communications. And then from there I went to Social Enterprise UK, mm-hmm. who are like the the membership body for social enterprise, mm-hmm. as the name would suggest. So they're kind of like for charity People, they're like an NTVO Akivo mashup, if you can imagine yeah. such a thing. Yeah. Let's not go down that road again. <laughs> I was there about six years, latterly as sort of deputy CEO, and then and then here. So I've only been in this this world, so it really needs to work out. Um, you know, if this whole sector collapses, I'm I'm not good for anything. So that's what I've been doing. So yeah, I mean, the reason why I applied for this job is I think particularly at the School for Social Entrepreneurs and Social Enterprise UK, learning that a lot of organisations, you know, finance, the right finance and the right support were critical to them achieving what they needed to do Mm. and making the difference they wanted to make. And I'd been really interested in that. And so the chance to kind of come to a place that did that as its core mission was really attractive. Part of the reason that I thought this would be an interesting topic is that despite just this organisation being, what, 18-ish years old... Social investment in some ways still feels like a shiny new thing. Yeah. I think from a fundraising perspective, a, a lot of fundraisers, including myself, we're quite happy to start off with, with zero at the beginning of the year because mm. we, we raise it, but we don't have to give it back. Mm-hmm. It's the giving it back bit, mm-hmm. bit of investment that scares me. Mm-hmm. And I'm ho- I hope that I'm not alone in that. So I thought through this podcast we could talk a bit about what it is and why people should get involved with it and scope it out yeah sure so i mean as you've said really i guess the main difference from grants is you have to pay some of it back how much you have to pay back depends on who you've taken the money from and what and what they want and i guess it differs from sort of mainstream investment by the fact that it's dedicated to achieving a social purpose so that's what it has in common with Mm -hmm. grants you know so you know we're a charity our mission is to provide the right finance and support to organisations to make the biggest difference they can. We're not driven by the need to make the biggest profits we can um, and make the biggest return we can on every investment. And so... You're not measured on that. Well, you you know, we need to sustain our business model just like any, any charity or social enterprise does. So we need to make all of that stuff work. 
so I need to be able to pay for the people who are cracking the deals but are doing the monitoring afterwards, that are managing them when they go wrong or they need help, and still be able to survive ourselves. So sometimes you use the interest on an investment to pay for that stuff. Sometimes you can get that from somewhere else. And often there's a blend in our sector as well. So those big funds I mentioned earlier, the, all the builders, future builders, which sector veterans will be familiar with, you know, that was £125 million of loan, but it was also £25 million worth of grant. Mm. And sometimes that grant was to pay for something specific, like refurbishing a building. And then the loan they've been able to pay out of what they've been able to earn. And so social investment is in that kind of land between grants and kind of scary mainstream investment, I suppose. Yeah. But really for us, it's about you're paying some of the money back and also we're looking for a social impact from that money as well. And I guess the other bit worth saying, and one thing that people think it differentiates from, say, getting a loan from the bank, is because we're a charity and our mission is a social one too, hopefully we tend to be a bit more flexible yeah. and view it as a bit more of a relationship. So... I can maybe get into that a bit more, but that's yeah. that's how we approach the kind of relationships with our investees, really. Yeah. The organisation talks about itself on the website and talks about offering money and support that they need and that you work as a partner, like you've just said, supporting effectively. Yeah. What does the non-financial support look like that you provide? Yeah, it's quite varied. So we've run a whole bunch of programmes uh, that basically have tended to operate on a kind of you get a grant to pay for business support sort of model. So things like big potential people might be familiar with or the investment and contract readiness fund and these kinds of things. And we're doing quite a bit of that with the Access Foundation yeah. um, at the moment, so the kind of enterprise development programme, yeah. which is really now seeking to help organisations become more enterprising, actually, um, and build their resilience. I guess there was a time when people were talking about, they tended to talk about investment readiness, like getting ready for investment was the only thing we should be aiming for. We're not really in that space anymore. Like actually, we think, and you probably know this from your experience, like it's about the organisations being stronger and being more sustainable and more able to do what they do. And sometimes social investment is a part of that and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just having better systems, yeah. diversifying your income, being more enterprising. So we tend to run those programmes but not, always deliver the support directly. And then there's some stuff on our funds where we've got an investment ourselves with our own money, where we we will get involved and help out um, on governance or on financial information or on redoing a business plan or whatever that organisation needs to help it succeed, really. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. But So we do quite a lot of different things at the moment. Yeah. But um, running programmes in partnership with other people, but also delivering direct support alongside our own money, basically. So you invest, you're investors yourselves, but you yeah. manage funds on behalf of others. Yeah, so we do both. So, so I should have said, really, we kind of do three things. We invest, we partner to deliver support, and we, we use the knowledge and data we have to influence. So on the invest side, you're right. So we, we, manage, we still manage funds for government. So future builders, because we're really patient as an investor, we're still managing about £40 million pounds worth of that. Uh, about three quarters of it still has 10 years to run. So we're really patient as an investor. So it really is a relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so I've just celebrated my 11th wedding anniversary, but some of our loans are longer than that. So we do that sort of stuff and we manage that on behalf of DCMS, which is the government department where it is now. But then we also have some of our own money 
So community builders, which was all about investing in quite risky community-based organisations up and down the country, usually in the most deprived, poor areas of the country, we got given the repayments of that by government at the time. And that was about 25 million. Basically, government did that because it wanted us to continue to reinvest back in organisations in the community. So that's what we do still. So that's kind of money we have more under our control directly. So we've got a bit of our own cash to, to use and invest as well. So what's your team like then? Because I imagine you need to have quite a diverse skill set yeah. to be able to deliver all of that. Yes and no. So I think we got into the sort of grants management and grant programmes partly because we'd built up a lot of expertise from doing investment, you know, actually looking at organisations, assessing them, being able to diagnose what they need and work with them on that are quite similar, Mm. regardless of whether you're looking at investment and grants, the problems or the challenges we come across are quite similar. Mm. You know, lots of stuff you expect as the sort of challenges, there's governance stuff, there's finance stuff, there's kind of business model stuff, you know, there's impact measurement stuff. Um, So we sort of transplanted that. And then we have a new team, which is kind of more on the kind of learning and influence side and trying to get our data into shape and research, how, you know, has this stuff worked really well? How, how could we have done it better? How would we do it differently? Um, so we're about 35. I'm hesitating because we've recruited about eight people in the last quarter, no. <laughs> um, which is a bit unusual. So, yeah, so we're about 35 people. And as I was saying to you before we... We started recording. We've got six people who are home workers up in the northeast, which is from a time when we used to have a big office in Newcastle at the start of Future Builders. They've been working on that for the start. So between them, they have kind of like 60, 70 years of experience of doing social investment and managing social investment. And a lot of them have held those relationships actually with those organisations right from when the, the original investment happened. Some of the funding that you provide is just grants. Does that grant funding sit with you because the organisations that you're supporting might not traditionally fit with the eligibility or criteria of other funders? It's a mix of things, really. On some of the programmes, it's just the organisation we're working with or who who came up with the idea for it might not have the ability in-house. So the stuff we do for Access, for example, they were set up to do kind of blended social investment that worked for smaller organisations, so a bit riskier, smaller deals, and also to capacity build, basically. But they never wanted to kind of have their own grants management team. So they just kind of outsource it and work with us on that, really. And that's been the case on on quite a bit bit of what we've done, where we've worked with organisations who just don't have the capability internally or see that it would take them five years to build their own team and they'd rather work with us to be able to deliver it so often it's that sort of thing and sometimes it's a it's a new partnership delivering something entirely new so one recent thing we've won is uh, we're in a partnership to deliver the youth endowment fund which is a 200 million pound 10-year fund to address serious violence amongst young people which has taken up a bit of my time in the last quarter as you might imagine and on that one you've got kind of impetus who are the lead you've got the early intervention foundation who are like the evidence experts Mm -hmm. And then you've got us doing a lot of the kind of grant management and processing. So that's more a kind of partnership right from the off. And again, you know, the Home Office felt that that money should go outside of them. So it was kind of held in in the sector and we could take a real 10-year approach to it. And so it's a range of reasons why people are seeking to do it. Sometimes they just haven't got their own team up to speed. Sometimes they don't want one. And sometimes they see that we can bring hopefully a bit more to bear from 
well, you met Deb, right? So you get that she's bringing a whole body of her experience along with the team yeah. and we can get up to speed really quickly and mobilise, I guess, a bit faster than some other organisations might be able to. But yeah. Increasingly, what we're trying to do is, I suppose, not just manage it for someone, but kind of partner with them on how do they get the most out of it? How do we learn from it? How do we evolve it better as it's going? So rather than us being kind of subcontracted to do it, we we're more interested in kind of like, we've got all this exciting information and expertise to bring to bear. Can we share that with you and yeah. do that with you so that it can be better? Yeah. Maybe let's talk about that in terms of the sort of knowledge and information that, mm. that you have and you share. So you've done lots of different reports and reviews of things. Social investment tax relief. Yeah. Sounds interesting. And a review well, it depends of on how, how interesting you find tax reliefs. I mean, you this, do all of this stuff, so what are the drivers behind it sure. and how do you actually use it and yeah, no, I think who it's do a, you influence and how? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like, So I think I, it was really clear to me coming in, I suppose, that when we started, we were kind of one of the only social investors around. There were some others who were still going, like Key Fund and Cath Venturesome and Big Issue Invest, but there weren't very many. In 2002, 2004, this felt very kind of like, you know, pioneering work, I think, and we were really influencing how this would come. You know, Big Society Capital arrived in 2012, but I'm not sure it from my perspective, it wouldn't have existed if we hadn't been kind of doing a load of stuff in the sort of 10 years beforehand. But now there's loads of different social investment intermediaries doing lots of stuff. And so I think one of the things we've got that they haven't is that long track record. So, you know, if we've done, as you said at the start, kind of 400 odd million of grants and loans, worked with, I don't know, 2,500 organisations through the various funds and programmes, we should have lots of exciting information and data that's useful to people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I would hope. Um, and that's what we're trying to get into shape at the moment. And, uh, you know, and some of that should be like, actually, the social investment stuff kind of works. You know, it's all right. Mm -hmm. Some of it's occasionally better than, or, or has different characteristics to a grant. Um, like we mentioned earlier that some of them last have lasted or been around longer than my marriage. Actually, the average grant is still... 24 months, two years, and often very project-based still, sadly. Our average loan is about 9.8 years. And so you do get a real relationship and you kind of yeah. flex along the line. So from our perspective, the reason we got into that influence is we kind of want to use that data and knowledge, which is a bit of a USP for us because we've got that long track record yeah. and that volume of stuff as well. It's quite a lot of things we've done. <laughs> And there is an opportunity, I think, to influence, you know, what comes next. There are people who are thinking about, well, how do we how do we invest usefully in all the areas of the country that need it most at the moment? My gut feel is, regardless of where we end up post-October the 31st, sorry to bring in yeah, the B word. Yeah, Halloween. <laughs> Nightmare. However scary October 31st is, like, I think and whichever party or set of parties is in place, I think they, they're going to want to invest in some shape or form. I think they have to back into some of those communities and those places. And I think we need to be sort of ready to kind of go, well, here's, here's what we think it should look like and here's what, how we think it should operate. And also, like you, you started with demystification. We need to kind of say to people, this stuff isn't scary, it works. Like yeah. we've done it with 1,500 organisations and, you know, it's gone all right, actually. They paid back the money and we were pretty flexible if they got into trouble and 
actually they've delivered a load of amazing impact as a result of that and made a really massive difference in people's lives because of the business model they've got that's more sustainable. I'm not sure we've done enough of that. So making the case to government, to other funders, to people who manage programmes, anyone who does money and support really, mm. how do you do that best? To what organisations, in what stage, in what places? That's what we're interested in. Something that you alluded to earlier in terms of investment readiness. Yeah. I think one of the things that I remember Deborah talking about was that you are really clear that you can't you can't just add that on to an organisation. So there was a lot of recognition and support around people being able to backfill roles yeah. and support in that way. Yeah. And people do get a bit overwhelmed with like, well, I can't set up an enterprise at yeah. the same time yeah. <laughs> as running this organisation. Yeah, definitely. When we've run those programmes that are kind of getting money to fund business support, I think we've got better at it, basically. So <laughs> I think... In the early days, you'd kind of get a grant of X. You'd pay someone to deliver business support. They'd come in, they'd deliver it, and then they'd go again. And you'd be like, oh, okay, that's really exciting and interesting, but I'm still kind of where I was. So now we think much more about using some of that grant for internal capacity. So, yeah, if the CEO or the head of development's got to spend two days a week for the next three months on something, well, let's pay for the backfill of that let's give them the capacity and let's make sure that that knowledge is like embedded in their organisation, not flying out with the consultant who came in three months before. So really starting to think through how we do that. It's not always easy because then you get a load of people applying basically to, to get money to fund their salaries, which is not what it's for. And you know, you know, charities are creative and will fit, you know, grant programmes to, to, to what they need and I totally get that I've been there myself I've been on the other side um so we have to be a bit careful but we've tried to get more flexible and more thoughtful about you know how we how we support organizations in the reality they're in you know and I think uh, we've got a bit better at that we've still got a way to go it relates a bit to what I said earlier about getting a bit social investment generally it got a bit far away from the organizations it was meant to serve I think and that's I think that's partly why I was brought in because I was coming from the social enterprise community and that and that sector, not from a finance background. And um, we're trying various routes to kind of address that and ensure we don't get into that that place again. Mm. Okay, that feels like a nice segue into um, the power dynamic between mm. investors and investees. So you've written a blog on this. Do you want to? Oh, blimey. I just don't, ex- I instantly don't expect anyone to have actually read the blog. <laughs> Social investment had, between sort of 20, I don't know, 10 and 2015, it was a bit overhyped. It became, you said it was new, and it became like the answer to everything. So Big Society Capital got established, everyone went, Big Society Capital will deliver us to the promised land, yeah. which was unfair on them as well as misleading to the sector. Um, you know, everyone should aim for social investment. You know, so it was investment readiness because you had to get ready for investment. And all of that was kind of wrong, really. I mean, genuinely my take on it. And um, not that it didn't do good work. Like, I think a lot of the programmes and social investors did some good stuff in that period. But it was kind of a bit back to front. So actually, we're about strengthening the charities and social enterprises to do the work on the ground. We're not about encouraging them to follow one particular route or another. There's loads of organisations, like you were with someone from Refuge earlier, like there's lots of organisations that require grant funding. There isn't a 
a business model that will handily pay back investment. And that's fine, right? So sometimes social investment can be part of the solution to the money they need. And quite, and sometimes it's not, and that's cool. And actually, we need to think about how do they build their resilience more broadly um, rather than kind of like try and insist that this is the answer and this is the route. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So that's why we talk now much more about building resilience and you know, the way we measure impact is very much about are we strengthening organisations and are we, are we you know, helping them on the kind of journey they need to go on. Um, in terms of the power, that didn't really answer the power dynamic at all, did it? I mean, I found it interesting, but it didn't really answer your question. But um, <laughs> the, I mean, I think, yeah, we'd, part, of that, part of that kind of related to the fact that we got a bit far from the organisations we were, we were meaning to serve. And so some of the things we're doing, we set up a customer panel, for example, who we pay who are sort of taken from people who've been on our funds or programs and people who haven't actually as well from across the country, different sectors. And we bring them together every quarter and we test stuff out on them, like everything from our strategy to our impact framework, but also like our, our new application form, like does this work? Is it really onerous? Is it a bloody nightmare? Um, does it make sense? Uh, would you be up for us storing these details so that you don't have to fill them in next time if you apply for the same thing so trying to factor them in and get feedback a bit more regularly from the ground um we've switched from doing a really boring long annual survey that very few people filled in to doing a sort of more regular four question survey to try and get a bit more live input yeah. to us so we can improve a bit more on the fly rather than kind of like look at our annual survey and see if it's five percent better than last year yeah. Yeah. um but there is that power dynamic and it's, it's, you know, and, you know, particularly when you're paying back money to someone, there is a kind of financial uh, duty you've signed up to and that we have to be very aware of that, I think, in how we monitor that. And for me, that's also about how do we balance the, the impact and the finance in what we're doing? You know, we should be, we should be having both alongside when we're sort of looking at an organisation and, and whether it, we think it should get investment or get a grant it can't just be about you know their business model and how much money they make and whether they can afford it obviously that's a big part of it but also it has to be about well can they also make a really significant difference with this do they meet our impact kind of criteria as well so and trying to really weave that through the organization is something we're trying to do much more as well but it is a challenge and doing it meaningfully is a challenge as well it's yeah. easy to be quite tokenistic i think yeah. i think the other thing with funders and people with a bit of money is you have to be really aware of that and like you know funders tend to go we're taking a strategic pause for nine months mm. and that's just deeply irritating i think if you're an organization that's on the verge of you know survival or not it's also being aware of that where i was you know if we didn't hit our targets for the year someone got made redundant probably mm then it might have been me you know so like that that is the reality for a lot of organizations and we have to just be really really understanding that so we did stuff like on one of our programs recently we instead of the first thing you see being a set of criteria or an application form we made the first point of call a phone call and for one set of the grants program we filled in the application form from the phone call with the person to try and take the burden if you like of the administration onto us rather than it always be on them. And we're also looking at 
the variations and flexibilities we give on our funds and holidays of repayments and that kind of stuff. So we're really trying to think about it a lot, but we haven't got all the answers by any means and we've got quite a long way to go. That sounds really good, taking the administrative burden off and, yeah. and supporting them through, through those initial stages. I yeah. imagine, particularly for younger organisations or those with really limited resources, there are a couple of organisations that I'm working with at the moment and they don't have fundraisers, they don't have any fundraising capacity yeah and they're sort of their skills are sort of limited in fundraising yeah, yeah. area and they're really skin they need core yeah. costs covering yeah but like you alluded to earlier you need to find ways of either finding somebody who will fund core yeah and that's incredibly competitive yeah in my experience or you need to be very creative yeah in inverted commas yeah absolutely how you describe your new innovative project which is actually just your business as usual so yeah we try and kind of find ways to ensure that the programs are as open and accessible as they can be that means that's partly who do we reach with our marketing and networks we go out through and we're trying to expand those um it's partly the processes um, and it's also partly that responsiveness. So we, you know, on on some of those support programs, particularly, we're trying to do really quick turnarounds. Mm. So kind of, you know, two weeks sign off from a grant coming in to being turned around and, and, and trying to work with the partners I mentioned earlier about can they give us the authority internally for below a certain threshold to do those grants. So if they trust us, we'll kind of assess them and, and do that kind of stuff can we can we do that you know so and that depends a bit on the program like you know often we'll have a grants committee that a set of assessments go to but but with with some that are kind of below 15 10 grand then sometimes our partner is open to us kind of signing those off and doing a quick response doing the paperwork on DocuSign so they don't have to wait for a letter to arrive and a letter and a bank statement to come back but we can do all of that electronically so we're getting there we're, we're trying to make it better but you're right on the the core cost funding bit I mean I think we you know we we can't always be as flexible as we would like on some of our programs as well and it's it's super competitive right I mean I guess that's why everyone is looking at trying to diversify their income be more enterprising um, and yeah they they have to be super creative um and it's hard it's really hard work (laughs) you know on top of the day job like you said yeah developing new skills on top of the ones that yeah 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 absolutely you've already got like this great thing you deliver that you know is really good quality and makes a real difference and now if you could just learn how to write great bids and you know franchise or i don't know deliver training over here to make that bit work yeah it's hard Let's talk a bit about impact measurement. So I can hear the like iPhones being switched off <laughs> as you do it. No, let's hope not. Your audience, I'm so sure, will love a bit of impact measurement chat. <laughs> yeah, my charity geek audience. So your challenge is, first of all, to make this really interesting now. Okay, let's do this. How do you measure impact for social investment business itself? Yeah. And how do you measure the impact or expect your investees to yeah so it flows from a bit what we've been chatting about doesn't it in terms of not making it hugely onerous Mm -hmm. so the honest answer is about us is that we haven't been very good at it at all so this is one of those kind of like do as we say not do as we do so to my knowledge social investment business has never done an impact report um, to date Um, that will change so there is one coming 
in about a month's time, so hopefully in September, October this year. So the challenge for us, given what we've chatted about and all the various things we do and have done, is to try and get something that can be used consistently across all of them, which is hard. Yeah, because there's so yeah. many different organisational structures and themes and causes. Exactly. Yeah. So that's so that's why we've developed a framework that is more about that kind of resilience piece. So that's not so much about, I don't know, specific outcomes around uh, getting people back into work or bringing people out of homelessness or whatever it is. So we've developed a framework with like six six categories and people can kind of look it up online, we put it up online. And we're starting now to build those into all our kind of programmes and funds so that over time we'll be able to kind of, hopefully, this is the dream, see whether this happens, aggregate it up. Um, but it's, it's hard because also, you know, to go back to the builder funds that I was chatting about earlier, the future builders, you know, so at that point, there was no social impact measurement built in. So it was just like, if we give money to charities and social enterprises, they'll do good. They'll be good. Yeah. So like for all that track record, we have n- there was no social impact measurement built in. There was to some of the later funds and some of the programmes are much more thought through. So as it gets later, obviously, it's been a bit more thought through. So how do we, how do we start to assess the impact of that, like, 10 years of work you know it's a really interesting (laughs) challenging question so we're thinking about that and doing some yeah doing some stuff on the data but also doing some really in-depth case studies maybe really going into depth on two or three organizations where we can look at that so that's the answer for us which is kind of broadly we haven't been very good at it we're trying to be better at it you can read the report when it comes out and see whether you make it we'll try and be super honest i think it's a starting point and we we know we've got a lot to improve on in terms of everyone else, it depends a bit on the fund and programme. So sometimes our partners will be interested in a particular area. Sometimes we do run more specific um, funds that have more of a target audience, if you like. Yeah. So we've got a small social investment fund at the moment called the Forward Enterprise Fund, which is social investment for organisations helping those coming out of offending or recovering from addiction. On that fund... Yeah, we are interested in how many of those people they're working with and their progression a bit. So we can sort of add some outcome areas specific to that fund. But the key word for us is kind of proportionate. (laughs) So, you know, if it's a 10K grant or a £50,000 deal as opposed to a £500,000 investment, then we should be proportionate about what we're asking for, not just on impact, but on everything, actually. Um, and so trying to, again, it's about thinking about the customer. If it's your small, innovative organisation with three people, there's very little point in us asking them for a whole bunch of stuff and trying to wrap them in, you know, uh, wrap them in spreadsheets about, you know, 12 different data sets of things we want. It's just not going to happen. So the starting point is normally what they're doing already. And if they're not doing anything, then just to kind of work with them on two or three simple things, ideally. And they align with these six categories? Yeah, they will align with that from our perspective. That's the bit that will be common to everything we do. The key for us is it's taken, is also about it being taken as seriously as the finance. So I think there's tended to be a bit of a tendency in social investment that because a lot of people come from a financial background and it's more easily understandable, you can kind of go, okay, here's the business model. We can see that they, it stacks up, you know, then they kind of take that more seriously and the sort of, decision-making process and we need to get the impact as written through on that um 
otherwise it's kind of an add-on when it needs to be as a sort of equal in our thinking as we can get it actually and right through from where decisions are made through to how we monitor and all that kind of stuff because that's what we're here for as well you know yeah, so you're just a mainstream investor right we might as well i might as well give up and go and work for lloyd's or something i mean it'd be i'm sure it'd be great there's lovely people there i'm sure but it's not it's not it's not what we're about no it's all right they're not a do we bank with them? No, we don't. And also the thing for us is trying to have impact throughout what we do as well. So obviously we hope we have impact through our funds and our programmes and the work we do. But that sort of bit about actually using our knowledge and data to influence is because we think we can have a broader impact on that, yeah. even if it's stuff we don't end up doing. So if we can influence a programme over there to be better in the way it's run or a fund over there to make better sense to charities and social enterprises, that's us having impact too. So is the way we spend our money internally. And actually, given that I mentioned a bank, we shifted where we held our money from some mainstream banks to some social banks so they can have impact. So we shifted money from mainstream banks, who I now won't mention, to like Triodos and Unity Trust and Charity Bank, because then they're putting the money to, to good use as well. So that's where we're at. So I'm hopeful we'll make a bit of progress this autumn. It's looking good what I've seen so far but then it will be looking good because we haven't had anything before it'd be difficult yeah, to be worse exactly, exactly. <laughs> it'll be better we're learning a lot from uh, yeah exactly it's a low a low bar to to overcome um and we've learned a lot from our other our sort of peers and and other organizations in social investment and, and looking at all of theirs and stealing a bit usefully and seeing what's worked best in their reports as well so that's where that's how we've been approaching it chat about diversity yeah why not we're gonna do that won't we yeah so one of the things that i had a quick look at was big issue invest mm. they say that mainstream investors basically don't fund women but that they do around 50 percent of their investments are to organizations yeah. led by women without even trying that's what they do i mean we're thinking about it in two main ways i guess the whole equality diversity inclusion bit i mean one is a bit related to what I spoke about before, is how do our, how are our funds and programmes as accessible to as wide a group of organisations as possible? Um, and that's everything. That is, yeah, female-led organisations, but also BAME-led in the sense that, you know, historically there's some evidence that social investment programmes haven't been as open and funds haven't been as open to those constituencies as they should they're better yeah well that came from our team actually so we have an internal we had an internal challenge um for the team to bring ideas to the table that they should, thought should be put into practice and so and we have a quite a diverse team and so they recognized themselves that people who looked a bit like them were not getting the opportunity so there we're piloting a program called diverse ambitions at the moment which they came up with they're running um, and I hope that either that becomes its own thing or it kind of informs everything else we do so we just get better at it and it's already building networks and knowledge and examples and insight that we didn't have before so I'm really pleased with it and I'm learning a lot as well from them. Big Issue Invest are, are good and we work with them a lot. Our figures from most of our funds and programmes are pretty similar so we're pretty good on most of it. And geographically as well, you know, is an issue. So but actually we do very well um, from all the various kind of funds and programmes we've talked about. Why do you think it is that social investment 
business and big issue invest for example yeah when they invest without even trying to reach 50% women led organizations yeah. they do yeah. whereas mainstream investment doesn't i mean partly it's it's the nature of the sector we're investing in so like i used to work at social enterprise uk and about 40% of all social enterprises are led by women. So by the very nature, if you're investing in social enterprises, if you were just investing blanket-wise, 40% should be led by women anyway. But I think it's also, it's about the openness of your processes. It's about who you market through and with. You know, the Diverse Ambitions Programme is working with kind of Voice for Change, for example. It's working with, through a bunch of other kind of networks and local geographical networks where we've had, there's been like gaps in where we've managed to reach geographically. So how do you do that? Because voluntary sector infrastructure has changed or disappeared in different places. So how do you find different routes into like, I don't know, the east of England that isn't Cambridgeshire or, you know, the East Midlands where there was like changes in CBSs and social enterprise infrastructure. So finding routes to do that and champions for what you do and partners. Part of it is that diversity piece externally and getting better at that and then building it into our data as well. So, you know, are we capturing that so we at least know whether we're doing a good or bad job? Half the battle is knowing in the first place. I think the second thing is within social investment organisations themselves. So I hope part of the reason why it happens with us and Big Issue Invest is because that diversity is reflected in the team. They've worked in charities and social enterprises themselves. We come from a very diverse range of backgrounds, both class and ethnicity in in terms of the team. But we still have a way to go. So I sort of describe to you how we, as an organisation, we tend to get paler and mailer as it goes up the organisation, particularly to our board and our kind of investment committees where a lot of the decisions get made. And so that's a big organisational priority for us. We're just in the midst of some board recruitment. So I'm hopeful that we will start to address that, but that's part of it. And I think I work with actually the chief executive, Big Issue Invest, Daniel, on the Diversity Forum for Social Investment, which is, again, looking more broadly at organisations, social investment intermediaries like ourselves to try and improve our practice. And that's everything from, yes, our boards and our senior teams, but also development programmes, social finance, for example, who are one of our peer organisations. They had a, a graduate programme for a while that was only open to people who'd been to university. And now they've got a kind of development programme that's open to anyone. And suddenly they're getting a much more diverse pool of you know, candidates through it, who would have thought. Or, you know, we're chatting to Big Issue Invest and Big Site Capital and others about well, what does a mentoring and development programme look like that actually assigns mentors to people who are coming up through because we need to develop a whole generation really rather than just like add people at a board level. There's a whole range of stuff there. I mean, are they sort of joke that, you know, so my nickname on the Diversity Forum is Nick Template because I am a white, straight, middle-aged man. So I'm like, you know, I am the only person on the diversity forum that is like that. So I sort of um, represent everything we're, we're trying, to, trying to address. I mean, that's what Daniel said. But I think we're, so we're doing a bunch of stuff in the organisation and mostly that's driven by the team and making it a priority internally. They're holding me to account on it. They're holding the board to account on it as they should. And then I hopefully we can, with others, there's a kind of a manifesto assigned to the diversity forum. So we're, we've signed up to that. We're trying to encourage a bunch of other people. I know there's lots of pledges and manifestos going around. So this was just one that we did. 
a while back in social investment and trying to encourage other organisations to do so. Because what's tended to happen, particularly in social investment, is a lot of them have hired people from financial services and newsflash, you then hire in all the same problems, like they're all white, male, Oxbridge, private educated, etc. We're trying to keep abreast of the the various conversations and and initiatives that are going on more broadly in the sector as well. But yeah, we need to sort ourselves out first before we preach too much to others, I think. Sounds like you're heading in the right direction. Shall we finish off yeah. with your book, Personal Ethos, that has inspired your work? It's really interesting. So I wanted to pick a book, but because I, I have a book blog which keeps me sane, yeah. I've been trying to, I read a book a week, or try to. Oh my goodness. Well, as we discussed at the start, I don't have children, I only have a cat. So that's probably part of the reason why I can. But but I think actually a person, so the guy I first worked for, called Nicholas Albury, really wildly ahead of his time in lots of areas. He basically said that a social entrepreneur was someone who solved a problem they were having in such a way that it solved it for lots of other people. And he was kind of fearless and creative and took risk, but was also kind of had his ethics written through him like a kind of stick of rock. I mean, very eccentric, so a real hippie. Two stories on that, if it's helpful. One is in my interview, if it could be termed as such, because it was based at his house. His way of interviewing was, say, tell us your life story in five minutes. That was the only interview question. And then as I was midway through trying to do that, I spotted a photo of him and his wife walking a goat across Piccadilly Circus naked <laughs> on the sideboard <laughs> behind him. It did put me off, but I did get the job. And once he, he lived in a bit of Notting Hill called Freston Road when it was quite uh, downtrodden in the 70s. And like they were quite a sort of hippie commune, basically. And the... Greater London Authority were threatening to sort of bulldoze them and build a load of homes. So they they declared independence from the UK. And he was like the minister for the independent Republic of Frestonia, named after Freston Road. And they like did passport stamps for people. They all changed their name by deed poll to the same surname. So they'd all have to be rehoused together. Like the minister of education was a three-year-old. And he represented them in court and they won and they were able to develop kind of social housing basically in that area and kind of design it themselves. And um, he showed that you could really be yourself, I think, and have humour in what you did and be bold and quite courageous. So that, yeah, he's been quite an inspiration. So he'd be my person, I think, in some sort of way. Unfortunately, he died. About two years after I started there, he died in a car crash. And we took over from him, three sort of really young 20-somethings, took over, we had not a clue what we were doing. So I did the accounts, like an English graduate doing the accounts, so that was entertaining. So it was an amazing learning curve, but he's remained a kind of beacon and a kind of inspiration to this day, really, in terms of what I've been doing. So I hope he'd uh, he'd be chuffed with that. He, he achieved more in his sort of 56 years than uh, most people do in their lifetimes, full, full lifetimes. So um, I aspire to have a sort of 10th of the same impact. Have you walked a goat across <laughs> Piccadilly Circus naked? I haven't spoken to Mrs Temple about this. I'm it's guessing so she'd be less keen. Maybe we'll take our cat it's Jeff so for a walk across Acton Park. I think that might be whether we do it naked. I'm not. I'm not sure. 
uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't taken on everything he did. <laughs> he had this vision of what the year 2000 would be like. Um, so that was, that was part of their rehearsal for the year 2000, the whole goat walking nakedness thing. So and that didn't pan out. Uh, but uh, that feels like a whole other podcast. It probably is. So let's should we leave that there? That's like a good uh, that, teaser. Yeah. But he was an amazing man, so worth worth checking out. Uh, yeah, Nicholas Albury and what he achieved as well. The areas that I really enjoyed hearing about in my chat with Nick were the power dynamic between investors and investees and specifically the steps that SIB is taking to address this. So their customer panel, which sounds amazing and meets quarterly, exploring how the organisation, its systems and processes could be better developed to improve the investor-investee relationship. Also worth checking out Nick's blog on this, which is on their website. Secondly, which I alluded to uh, in the introduction to the podcast, really, really enjoyed hearing about impact and the six areas across the impact framework. I really liked that Nick was really honest about where the organisation is at and look forward to seeing their impact report over the next few months. The third area that I enjoyed hearing about was diversity in the social investment sector. So what the sector as a whole is doing, uh, for example, through the diversity forum that Nick sits on. I also love that he's called Nick Template on it. As well as the steps that social investment business is taking towards a more equal, diverse and inclusive organisation, both internally and through its funding. So, for example, the Diverse Ambitions Fund. And I look forward to seeing and hearing more of it. And finally, I really enjoyed learning about Nicholas Albury, who, if you look on my blog, there is a link to the Republic of Frestonia. And I think that this is just such a brilliant story in terms of social action. So I'd encourage you to check it out. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it. Thanks so much.